Okay, good morning everyone. Welcome back to our study of Brian Wolfmuller's text, Has American Christianity Failed? We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, we are on the chapter about Jesus. <laughs> and as it turns out, Jesus is the center of Christianity. Could you imagine that? Christ being the center of Christianity? Christianity? <laughs> well, what happens in American Christianity that we've seen? Really, it's a matter of emphasis, right? Obviously, the Bible speaks of Christ. Obviously, the Bible speaks of the Christian. But what happens when we overemphasize the Christian, the I? We end up losing Christ. We end up losing the he. And that is, as unfortunately, what we have seen in spades in American Christianity. Christ is recedes all the way to the background and or gets distorted. He's kind of, to he's mentioned as a token. I can't tell you how many sermons I've heard where Jesus is mentioned at the very end. Or maybe at the very beginning and then the very end. But the whole middle, for all intents and purposes, has nothing to do with him at all. And then distortive, too, in the sense that where there is a Jesus, it's not really a recognizable Jesus in the scriptures. Not a Jesus showing forth our sin. Not a Jesus showing forth that he is our Savior. Not a Jesus who's, who sets his face toward Jerusalem to go to the cross for us. Not the Jesus of the Gospels where huge, huge percentages, blocks of the Gospels, way disproportionately so, are focused on the passion of Jesus, the last week of his life, his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection. All of the emphasis on Scripture is on Jesus and him crucified and him risen. And then we see in American Christianity sort of Jesus as life coach, Jesus as co-pilot, Jesus as imaginary friend, all of these kinds of aberrations, where if that's your Jesus and you're out of the scriptures, you can be pretty comfortable with that Jesus. But once you get into the scriptures for yourself or get into a church where the scriptures are the main entree, so to speak, you're going to see Jesus everywhere. All right, well... With that as sort of the main theme we've covered, we took a look at how even the Old Testament scriptures teach of Jesus. That was pages 76 and 77, if you recall. Three different places where the New Testament scriptures indicate that the Old Testament scriptures are all about Jesus, all about Christ. And then we had this example too, the Proto-Evangelium, the very first preaching of the gospel. That's what Proto-Evangelium means. And that is found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Um, 79, top of page 79. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We spent a lot of time talking about that last week. So I don't intend to belabor that point. But look, what is the take home? The take home is that the Old Testament faith was a faith centered on Jesus. The Old Testament saints were Christians. And so then we too are Christians with our eyes set on Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah. 
All right. Let's um, with that kind of in mind. Adam and Eve they fell into sin. God promises. He actually is speaking to the serpent. The seed of the woman will crush your head. With that in mind, let's turn over to page eighty, and we'll kind of launch into the new material here. Page eighty,、um, and we're going to go past the bullet points right into the first full paragraph, where Wolfmuller writes, putting it all together. God promised Adam and Eve the birth of a child without a father. Remember how it's the seed of the woman, and how strange that language is. So already you can see the virgin birth in the Protoevangelium. God promised Adam and Eve the birth of a child without a father, who would also be God. And of course, you can tell that too from the literal reading of Eve's response when. Cain is born to her, her firstborn. She says, "I have received a man." Now your English will say, "A man from the Lord." That's a nice little insertion of "from the" or "from" rather, maybe. I have received a man, the Lord. She says, and so she knew that this was God in human flesh, who was going to come and undo the works of the serpent—sin, death, and the devil. Oh, so well, sin and death is what the devil brings in, obviously. Okay, so. Putting it all together, God promised Adam and Eve the birth of a child without a father, who would also be God, who would die to destroy the devil and his kingdom, and who would rise from the dead. Amazing! After hearing the promise of Genesis three fifteen, Adam and Eve could confess the Apostles' Creed. <laughs> These words spoken in the wake of Adam and Eve's sin are a full and wonderful preaching of the gospel. From the promise of the devil-destroying seed, all the preaching of the Old Testament flows. Well, let's take a look at that. God promised both Abraham and Isaac, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. They're quoting Genesis chapter twenty-two and chapter twenty-six, quoting.、Uh, Looks like Second Samuel. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. God promises David. So we have the seed of Abraham, the seed of Isaac. We have the seed of David. And from Abraham's and Isaac's and David's seed came the seed. This promise of the seed, first given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, as they stood in the ruins of a dying universe, is the blood-red ribbon that runs through the pages of the Old Testament. It is the hope of all of the Lord's people, and it is their salvation. Now, when you see that when you see that language of seed or offspring in the Old Testament,、um, there's a there's a singularity to it. It's a reference to Christ, but there's also a plurality to it.、Um, you can think of that plurality in two different ways: a, a biological plurality. Your seed will number the will outnumber the stars in the sky or the sands on the seashore. Remember that kind of language. You can think of that as a biological multiplicity, plurality. That would be true, but I think even more as the、uh, 
as the, as the New Testament makes extremely clear for us, especially St. Paul, he writes that not all of Israel is Israel. And those who are sons of Abraham are not so after the flesh, but after his faith. So it's an interesting way to think of those Old Testament scriptures where your offspring will outnumber the stars in the sky, are those, or, or the, or the sands on the shore. Are those offspring biological or spiritual? Well, if they are in the one who is the capital S seed, the capital O offspring, then are we not so joined with him so that there's this singularity in Christ and this plurality in those who are of him? Yeah, sons of Abraham by faith. And so we too become part of that seed, part of that offspring, part of Christ, baptized into him. As he is the son, so we also are sons of God. Okay, so just some thoughts there on um, how you might read those verses from the Old Testament, which are nearly everywhere, and not often recognized, but they should be, not often recognized as verses explicitly about Christ. Indeed, St. Paul takes up this very argument and says, when they write offspring, they're writing offspring singular. This is first and foremost a reference to Christ, thus says St. Paul in the New Testament scriptures. So, this isn't something I invented or Wolfmuller invented or Luther invented or any such thing. It traces all the way back to St. Paul himself. Let's pause there because we kind of wrap up this subsection. Let's see if you have any thoughts. Let's see if you have any thoughts. Again, the idea is that in the scriptures we see Jesus at the center of everything, Old Testament and New. So then, what would be a scripture, what would a scripture-based church look like? It would have Jesus at the center. You know, isn't it ironic that when someone, I don't know if you have this experience, when tell me, someone tells me they go to a Bible-believing church, immediately my mind is, well, you don't believe a lot of it. <laughs> Just by virtue of the title, it's one of the ironies. And I hate to be, I hate to be, um, to have that kind of sarcastic streak in me, but it's true. A Bible-believing church except for, well, whatever the Bible says about the sacraments, which put Jesus front and center in our everyday lives. A Bible-believing church, except for the fact that the Bible is all about Jesus, and what I experience at your Bible-believing church, Jesus is sort of like off to the side. So in what sense is it a Bible-believing church? You're really rather choosing the parts out of it that you want to believe. Um, so anyway, perhaps you've had a similar experience with Bible-believing churches, quote-unquote. Uh, color me skeptical. Okay, any thoughts you have on this section? All right, let's motor along. One second, let's get you a microphone. This is kind of off the subject, but uh, what do you think uh, Adam and Eve's uh, uh, capacity was as far as knowing God and knowing, uh, I mean, uh, his will for them and the ability to be one and one with God it, uh, they have, must have had an amazing knowledge and that was lost. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't, I'm not expressing myself right, but you know, you get what I mean a little bit? I, th I think you, so. I think so. It's reminding me of maybe some ground we've covered before in this class, just the idea that we sort of think in evolutionary terms, even if we reject evolution, we still think this way. We tend to think of Adam and Eve as... Children, spiritual children, immature, not knowing anything, um, 
sometimes even our Sunday school materials kind of picture them as like cave people. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And so we've got this idea that, that they don't know anything. And now we all know much more than them. So when they, when they report the things that only they could have known, the things about, um, well, the content of Genesis that they passed on and that was passed down all the way to the point in which Moses writes those things. Um, we assume, Oh, well, they didn't understand anything about the universe. And so now we're so much more enlightened and sophisticated, we can just see that they were in error, or else, if we don't want to say they were in error, what will we say? Poetry. It's just poetry, metaphor. And um, we know better. We know better. Now we have a sophisticated view of the scriptures. Well, the church fathers, this was frankly the first sobering wake-up call I had in this respect, and that's seeing that the church fathers viewed it completely the opposite direction. That Adam and Eve knew more than anyone else. And there has been a slow de-evolution <laughs> that's taken place. Um, they, underst they understood things about God. Um, I mean, even if you think about this, before they're fallen into sin, they're, they're created into the image of God. They're walking with God in the garden. There's an intimacy and a knowledge of God. There's an intimacy and, and a knowledge of the Creator and an immediate ability to reflect upon the creation as such. You can see this. Again, this would take us in a whole other direction. I don't want to go there. But you can see this even in God giving it, giving dominion, lordship, rule um, to Adam and Eve over the face of the whole earth, over all the creatures. You can see this in um, Adam naming the animals, even naming the first woman, Eve. You, you can see this, this knowledge of what things are and this ability to put a name to it that is meaningful. Um, you can see all kinds of intelligence, you know. God didn't have, you know, God didn't say, now here's a, here's a garden, here's what you, okay, if you, if you don't remember to move the sprinkler over, it's not gonna go well. No, I mean, there's no instructions here. God just creates man and woman. Think of, think of Adam's response when God puts him in a deep sleep, takes the rib from his side, forms the woman. Okay, is he a stuttering, stammering idiot? Is he like, uh, what's that? <laughs> no, he instantly knows she shall be called woman. She's flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. She was taken from me. I mean, look at the wisdom. Look at the presence and the wisdom that, that is inherent in Adam in the text itself to immediately know, recognize, um, see the compatibility, uh, all of, uh, see the wisdom of God in this creation that he's done. So I th we really, really ab abuse the scriptures and depart from the long tradition of the, of the Christian teaching of the church fathers when we lose this view. Adam and Eve knew and understood much more than we do, and uh, we need to give them credit in that respect. So I don't know if that was kind of along the lines of what you were thinking. I'm you cleaned it up nicely. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. That's, um, Thank you. yeah, it's helpful to recall that. It's helpful to recall that. And it also, I mean, this is the way Luther takes it in his Genesis commentary, is a lot of the feats of strength, too, that you see in the scriptures, you know, got guys doing things that guys normally can't do. Um, I mean, Samson with a lion and that kind of thing. Um, and how did nobody find this completely fanciful? I, with Samson, of course, you've got some, some miraculous power imbued there, to be sure. But Luther's point is that this wasn't all that uncommon. 
that his his argument, and you can take it if you, as a poetic exaggeration if you want, I suppose. But his argument was that in the Garden of Eden, if there were lions and tigers and bears, Adam could Adam could have played with them like puppies and kittens. That's what Luther says. He believes that Adam had eyesight far greater than our eyesight, strength far greater than our strength, and ability to all five senses running at a much higher level than all, than our five senses. I mean, think of it. There's no decay. No contact lenses for Adam, <laughs> right? Um, there's no COVID nose where you lose your sense of sense of smell, or it comes back fitfully and at all the wrong times. That's been my experience. <laughs> yeah, there's none of this, so it's it's really interesting and intriguing to think along those lines, and you can make sense of some of the feats of strength and things that people accomplished. You know, how is it that how is it that Noah could build the ark at his age? How is it that he had the strength and the stamina and the endurance day after day and this kind of thing? Well, if you follow the church fathers on this point, you see that mankind used to be a lot stronger and smarter and spiritually attuned. And as it's gone on, we've gone less and less and less so. Maybe accelerated. I didn't bring it with me. I'm having withdrawal symptoms. But maybe accelerated by that little thing in our pockets that is our functional brain power. I don't have to remember anything because it's just... Uh, few clicks away and then if that thing disappears suddenly all my knowledge does too <laughs> yeah. more and more dependent upon external things to us technology as opposed to God's graces within all right well for what it's worth so on page 81 we enter a new section, and with this section, I want to I want to just start reading through it. Uh, do a little more thorough treatment here on, um, and and it's titled "God Established Sacrifice in Order to Preach This Promise," and this is key. This is key because. We've heard uh, Wolf Mueller kind of say this in poetic ways up to this point. The scriptures are all about Jesus, but they're also, as it were, poetically soaked in blood. There's blood everywhere. There's this, and, and if you think of the Old Testament instituted at the time of Moses and what the liturgical experience of the people is. Now they're not going to, they're not going to the church on Sunday morning. They're going to the temple on the Sabbath day, and what is it that they're experiencing there? It's very, very bloody. All right, so we want to we want to put those two thoughts together: Christ and the presence of blood that we see so prominent in the Old Testament scriptures, and that's what we're up to here in this section. Wolf Miller writes back to the garden. Even after God promises the death of Jesus, Adam and Eve are still standing there in their useless fig leaves. <laughs> but God has a solution. He takes an animal, kills it, skins it, and wraps it around Adam and Eve. Interesting. So the first death in the scriptures is by the hand of God. What did the poor animal do? Adam and Eve immediately became members of PETA. That was the founding of PETA right there. Now, what did, what, what did, this, what did this poor animal do? This animal was innocent. Ah, the death of an innocent in order to cover the 
nakedness of the guilty right off the bat. A death at the hand of God. God slays an innocent in order to clothe the guilty. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> I hope so. Uh, God slays his innocent son, his innocent lamb, in order that we might be clothed. How beautifully you see this articulated in the passion of Jesus. Remember how he is stripped? Remember the detail that's kept in regard to his clothing? Now, they take some of it and divide it and, among themselves, but then there is a, a garment that is seamless of one piece, and they say, let's not tear this up, let's cast lots for it. Now, just very poignantly, historically, one of those who crucified Jesus went home with that cloak and was clothed in it. That's a fascinating historical detail. But of course, it's more than that, isn't it? Think in terms of Genesis. Think of this animal that God, this innocent, that God slays, and then he does what? Takes the, the skins and wraps it around the sinners. Think of Jesus slain by God, his garments stripped from him in order that they might cover us. This is why St. Paul says, do you not know that all of you who have been baptized have put on Christ? You've been clothed with him through baptism. So that's what it means to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We can glimpse in Adam and Eve being clothed by the skins of the innocent animal, us being clothed by the skins of Christ. There's something in this too, um, with him being the Lamb of God. Remember what the scriptures say as the as the lamb is silent before its shearers, so he opens not his mouth. Well, what's happening when a lamb is sheared? You're taking off its, its wool, its fluff, and you're going to use that to clothe someone. So what's, what's happening then when Isaiah compares Jesus, the Lamb of God, to a lamb before its shears who is silent, so Jesus opens on his mouth? Well, what's happening to the Lamb of God before he's slain? He is sheared. He's stripped naked. And for what purpose? That we might be, again, clothed in his righteousness. This is why the Lamb has to be spotless, unblemished, because that wool, that fluff that's going to clothe, uh, clothe us, has to be spotless and without blemish. Okay, so we're in we're into some very very um, deep scriptural things here. But from the very beginning, you can see Adam and Eve. They recognize they're naked as a result of their sin. They they've sewn together fig leaves in order to cover their sins. Is it working? No. <laughs> A stiff Edenic breeze <laughs> shows that all their labors are incapable. And so God has to clothe them. There's even a kind of teaching on self-righteousness, isn't there? Can we, can we make up for our sins? Can we cover ourselves? No, the fig leaves fail. Our attempts fail. You can see in their sowing fig leaves together that this is insufficient, that God must remedy it, not us. Okay, and so remedy it, God does through the death of an innocent animal. Again, Wolf Mueller, he takes an animal, kills it, skins it, and wraps it around Adam and Eve. 
Wolf Mueller continues, this must have been horrifying. The first death, the first blood spilled, all at the hands of God. Imagine Eve's face as the Lord hangs this animal upside down and its bowels spill out on the ground. This is what it takes to cover our sin? The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. It will take the death of God himself. Every sacrifice on every altar offered by every priest is a preaching of this first promise. Every burnt offering is a picture of the cross where the blood of God, that's quoting from Acts 20, will flow. The tabernacle and then the temple in Jerusalem are all established to preach the promise of Genesis 3.15. This is the theology of sacrifice. So much of the Old Testament is about sacrifices. All right, so the scriptures are all about Christ, and then truly all about Christ crucified. And you can see this because where, from what, rather, do all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament flow? from this promise that the seed will come and crush the serpent's head. In order to do that, he himself will be bitten in the heel. He himself will suffer and die, but he will crush the serpent's head in this very act, bringing his heel down upon his head, overturning sin and death once and for all. All right, so far so good. So, where we left off, the giant type in the middle of the page, page 81, there is forgiveness in the blood of the sacrifice because that blood is bound up to the promise of Jesus. Atonement requires death, the death of God himself. Yeah, and I would just add and emphasize once more that that, that animal who dies to clothe them is an innocent. So it requires the death of an innocent for the guilty. It requires the death of an innocent man for the guilty men. And so here we see then the, the roots of the incarnation, the roots of the atonement in the deepest parts of the Old Testament scriptures. It's where, you know, a very sad thing has happened in American Christianity. I don't know that Wolf Miller is going to comment on this, but a very sad thing has happened in American Christianity. Of course, you, you have the crucifix virtually nowhere. That's part of it. But then you even have, and, and this is true in the Eastern Orthodoxy, this is true in Roman Catholicism, this is true even more sadly to me as of late in Lutheranism, you've got a denial of the atonement. Jesus just came, and whatever it was he came to do, it wasn't to die for our sins. Well, why did he die? Some people say it was an accident. Well, he got on the wrong political side of the Romans. Um, well, he wanted to demonstrate his love for us, even unto death. Uh, all of this nonsense. But what do you have to do in order to jettison the atonement? And what I mean here is the idea that Jesus is on the cross in our place, shedding his blood for our sins giving himself into death for the life of the world. What do you have to do to erase all that? Yeah? Yeah, well, that's part of it. 
That's part of it. But I think, I think in this context, what I'm reflecting on is you'd have to do away with the entirety of the scriptures. You'd have to take the entire Old Testament sacrificial system and chuck it. You'd have to take the language of the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis 3.15 and the death of the animal that clothes Adam and Eve after that. And you just have to, you'd have to say, well, well, none of that means anything. It's all just incidental. And the Old Testament sacrifices, then you'd even have to concoct a kind of theology where you'd be like, well, this is how God was in the Old Testament, and now in the New Testament he's learned his lesson. Which, lo and behold, some people are brazen enough to say. Of course, your observation is correct that this dovetails perfectly with if we lessen our sin or make our sin abstract, then we lessen our need for a Savior and we make his saving abstract. And so those two things are tied together. Um, this happens in, you know, in, in Lutheran circles in this way. It ceases to be your particular sins paid for by the particular blood of Jesus on the cross. And it, it atrophies into your sin. Well, what sin? Just sin. And what, what, what remedy to that sin? Well, just Jesus. Jesus crucified, Jesus' blood, Jesus' atonement, just Jesus for just sin. What do you mean by that? And you, what you really see is an atrophying of the faith, even to the point where it's kind of unrecognizable, and then you know it starts to fall out. Well, we don't really need Jesus per se, we just need forgiveness. So then all of Christendom is shrunk down into two words, sin and forgiveness. And when sin is taken that nebulously, that lightly, I can even boast that I'm a sinner and the chief of sinners, and we're all sinners, and hooray, we're sinners. And it's no longer said with any sense of shame, with any sense of the concrete reality and contours of your own unique sins and my own unique sins. And again, the unique attitude of Jesus toward each one of us individually and collectively to shed his blood, not merely for sin, but for every particular sin of thought, word, and deed by every particular person. Um, we're, not going to, we're not going to forfeit that um, for the sake of modern trends. We're not going to tear asunder the very nature of the law and the gospel, nor, to Wolfmuller's point, the entirety of the scriptures and the sacrificial system that teaches this. I don't know that Wolf Miller's going to get into it, but if you go digging around in the Old Testament, you'll find examples of confession of sins. Some instances you'll see this being done by the priest, and another instance by the head of the household. It's this idea that the, the hand is laid upon the lamb, and the sins are confessed. Not just, I'm a sinner, but whatever the sins of the family are, or the sins of the people are, and those sins are confessed in specific detail, and then the lamb is slain. Those sins are being symbolically transferred to the innocent by the laying on of the hands. I lay my sin on Jesus, the spotless lamb of God. Remember that hymn? That's where this all comes from. And so, so then we see that uh, he dies not for sin nebulously, but for our sins specifically, and, and his blood is shed for us and for our forgiveness. And his skins, as it were, are taken and we're clothed in them. Okay, let's, uh, let's pause there and see if you have any thoughts on this. I know my question is going to show my ignorance, so I apologize in advance. But I'm having a hard time comprehending how Adam and Eve could even 
continue to live after they saw what they had done? And what did God do? Did he comfort them? Did he come running in and say, look what you did? Or it was just kind of all evidence in their wisdom. And then how did they continue to live with what they'd done? Yeah. Obviously, God gave them the promise that he would fix it, and that gave them some comfort. But knowing that you wrecked the world <laughs> is kind of a hard thing to live with. You know? I know. I mean, and I everything know. that had changed for them, yeah. their eyesight got worse. They started to be aches and pains. You know, what used to be perfect temperature all the time, now it's hot and cold and uncomfortable. And I mean, all the things that we can imagine, they now experienced... I'm sure they had a level of regret that we can't even begin Absolutely. to understand because they had seen the perfection and now that's regret yeah. for a sin, for sure. Yeah, with I, I think you bring up a great reflection. Um, they bear that sense of shame that all of us who know, know it was... Now there's a, there's a little bit of a sense here too that's mitigated. We're all we're all one man. We're all one fallen man. And this is where you kind of get this speculative talk of like, well if you or I were there it wouldn't have gone any differently. I mean that's true on this basis that we're all man. Okay. Um but still they bear that shame. They bear that temporal consequence and load that is um reflective of that and so there's a there's a temporal sort of justice there but i think i think maybe at what you're what you're at too is um the profound miracle of god working life through his word for them so that they do not fall into despair in the day you eat it you shall surely die well, they didn't just fall over and croak in their bodies. How did they die? Dead in their trespasses, spiritually dead. Thus, when the Lord comes, I mean, he who is life there, fleeing from him and hiding from him. They're trying to avoid life. They're already dead in their trespasses and sins. When God comes and preaches the gospel in their earshot so that they hear it, that word enlivens them, resurrects them from the dead so that spiritually they're alive and they don't fall into that kind of despair we see. Cain and Saul and Judas fall into. Adam and Eve don't fall into that. And I think too that there is, um, there are, are some amazing reflections on this. As I mentioned earlier, you see a, you see Eve's, um, intense faith in the promise of God, so much so that as soon as Cain comes, she thinks, this is it. This is the answer. This is the Lord. It's all going to be undone. I mean, she's, she's mistaken, but the intensity of faith is there and evident. I think you see this as well in um, Adam. Remember what, it, it's after all of this that we're told he names Eve. And remember what he names her? The mother of all the living. And if we're glossing over this, we just think wrongly that he's referring to as, well, everybody who's ever going to be born ultimately comes from her. Now, no, that's not what he means. What does he mean? In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. They've, 
They're dead in their trespasses and sins. God comes and proclaims the gospel to them, and they are alive. They have been resurrected in this faith. They're spiritually alive. They're waiting for the undoing of this. They're trusting in God and in the seed, the offspring that he is going to send. And that's precisely when he names her the mother of all the living, the mother of all the faithful. Of all who believe in God are enlivened by God. Immediately you see the generation of the living and the generation of the dead, the sons of God and the, the daughters of men. Right? So I think that that's a statement of faith, and I think it's a prototype, by the way. Um, the mother of all the living, the mother of all who have faith. Contrast this with, um, with the position of Mary, who is the answer to Eve, the symmetrical answer to Eve. In many ways, Christ is the symmetrical answer to Adam. That's why the scriptures call him another Adam or a second Adam. Um, but, but Mary is, is the, the symmetrical answer to Eve. If Eve is the mother of all the living on account of faith, Mary is too and more so. Because through Mary comes the Messiah, the one who Eve had said, I've received a man, the Lord, and she was wrong. Mary says this, and she was right. Ah, as Elizabeth said, blessed is she who heard the word of the Lord and believed it. So, in what sense is Mary the mother of all the living? And we can do this without making her a mediatrix or a demtrix. We can do this without worshiping her. We can do this without falling into all the excesses of Rome. We don't want to do any of that. We deny and reject all that as Mary herself would. But we're not going to then make her just a regular saint. She's not. So, in what sense is she the mother of all the living? Well, she's the mother of the Lord. She's the mother of Jesus. Jesus actually calls us Brothers. If we're brothers, then who is our father? His father, the heavenly father. Who is our mother? His mother. Luther just plainly says, he who will not have Mary as his mother will not have God as his father. Because if Jesus is our brother, that is in fact the reality. Very, very interesting. At the end of John's gospel, where Jesus beholds his mother by the foot of the cross, and the disciple whom he loves. Who's that disciple whom he loves? It's an ingenious literary technique. It's probably John's self-reference to himself. That's the low-hanging fruit, but why does he, why does he refer to, that, to it that way? Merely out of humility? I don't think so. What's the literary technique? Who is the disciple whom he loved? You. You. John is always break, well, not always, but he, John breaks down the fourth wall, as it were, if you were, to, if this was a film. When else does he do this? I'm going to preach about it this Sunday. These things were written so that you may believe. Who's the you? The reader, the hearer, you and I, so that we may believe. He's kind of breaking that fourth wall and just saying, look, I didn't write this down because I'm assigned to, to write the encyclopedia of Jesus' death here. Um, this is so that you may believe. Okay, so at the end of John's Gospel, what does he do? Jesus is on the cross. At the foot of the cross is his mother, not referred to anywhere in this context as Mary. 
but just as his mother. Like if you pay attention to the lips of, I mean, Jesus, like what actually comes out of his lips? Okay. Obviously, John identifies her as Mary, but pay attention to what comes out of Jesus' lips. Never calls her Mary, calls her woman. Woman. Okay, and then the disciple, his beloved disciple whom he loves, that's you and me, behold your mother, behold your son. I thought he was the mother, I thought she was the mother of Jesus. She is, but she's the mother of the disciple whom he loves as well. And then what does the English say? From that day forward, he took her into his own home, except that's not what the Greek says. From that day forward, he took her as his own, unto himself. Very, very different. What do we see then as John's gospel continues? Revelation 12, the Gospel of John, part 2. What do we see in Revelation chapter 12? The woman who gives birth to Christ, crowned with the 12 stars. And she gives birth not only to Christ, but she gives birth to all who believe in Christ. Who is that woman? The mother of all the living. It is the symmetrical answer to Eve in Mary, and it is Mary, but we could also say more than Mary. It is Mary, and insofar as it's Mary, it's also the, then the church. Why is Mary a virgin mother? Because that's what the church is. That's the baptismal font. We all come out of the baptismal font from the virgin mother, the holy church, born from above with God as our father. With the church, if you had to nail that down to one person, with Mary as our mother. So it's this beautiful biblical theology that stretches from Genesis all the way through. There's an entire, there's an entire theology of woman, an entire, an entire theology um, of Mary that's been utterly taken away from us by two great errors. The first is the Roman Catholic errors regarding Mary. And we don't want to, I mean, it's the same reason, like, why don't faithful pastors want to say anything about stewardship or money or offerings? Because the televangelists and all the shucksters and shysters out there have practically ruined it. And you don't, you barely want to speak on it because you don't want to be lumped in with that. You still need to, you still need to be faithful and just simply bear that. Well, the same is true by parallel with the Roman Catholic abuses in regard to Mary. We're, we're all scared to death of speaking the way the Bible speaks about Mary and speaking the way the Reformers spoke about Mary because we don't want to be lumped in with these egregious errors and idolatries. Well, I think we can thread that needle. I think we can find our way to speak faithfully. Um, so that I, think is our, that, I think, is our first hurdle. And our second hurdle is feminism. Because feminism has, has stripped our ability to even see the scriptures for what they say. I mean, take what St. Paul says. Um, Eve was deceived, but Adam was not. The woman was deceived, but the man was not. Now, immediately, like, even as a pastor, it's like, well, you can't actually read that. People will be offended. Wait a minute, what? You can't read the word of God? It's the word of God. It's not misogynistic. Is God misogynistic? Of course not. And it's only in realizing that there's these, there's, there's these very key differences. In fact, there's a kind of asymmetry between the fall of Eve and the fall of Adam that then you understand and, and open up the contours of what God's doing through man as such and what God's doing through woman as such in order to restore the world. And here's where you find all kinds of parallels, like through the woman, 
came the fall. Through the woman comes the redemption. And, and, and you just, it, it opens this avenue to this rich, rich theology. And, and then you start seeing aspects of this all throughout the scriptures. We, we just finished in our other class going through, um, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings. And so many times the kings of Judah, there's a reference to the mother, the queen mother, never to the king father as such, but always so and so became king and his mother was such and such. Why? Because of all this theology. You have the, the son who is king and the mother present. And so as Jesus fulfills that role, we see why. Why, why no father? Why no father? Because God is the father. It's like this hole waiting to be filled in the, in the New Testament. Okay, well, I'm sorry for this whole digression. But I think that it's important for us to um, be aware of the errors of feminism that have just made it, hey, it's all Adam and Eve, and they're both completely equal in the thing, and really, actually, since Adam's the head, it's he's more to blame, and um, we're just gonna, we're gonna whitewash this whole thing. Um, we lose, we lose so much detail and intricacy and amazing aspects of the redemption story that God gives to us. And then, and then we're so afraid of like falling into worship of Mary that we fail to see the key prominent role um, that she plays as icon of the church, an icon, a mother of the living, taking us all the way back full circle. Okay, I hope I answered your question somewhere in there. <laughs> I'm sorry. But as you can tell, I'm kind of passionate about this stuff. And, and it's ways in which you really, truly see Jesus through all the Old Testament scriptures. And one of the ways you can do that is by seeing the proximity of this mother and son motif going all the way all the way through the scriptures. As soon as your eyes are open to this, and I'm not even saying mine are fully open to this, you start seeing it everywhere. You start seeing it places you didn't see it before. Um, remember how, uh, remember with Jacob and Esau, and Jacob was the younger, and God promised that he was, you've got these two, it's almost as if you've got Adam and Jesus, Esau and Jacob, it's the second born. There's a preference for the second born that is made the first born in these stories. Who's that about? It's about Jesus over Adam. Adam, who was once the head of our race, the first born of God, now has been replaced by the second born, who is, in fact, been placed in the place of the first born. So it's, and then, and then what's the role of the mother there with, with Jacob and Esau? The mother ensures that he's the one that gets the blessing. And, and so she is instrumental in that. And you can see, too, um, just this role of the mother as being instrumental at key places throughout the scriptures, showing uh, you know, by type and foreshadowing how Mary herself is going to play this key and pivotal role. I mean, again, here Luther and many church fathers with him say that Mary's the first Christian. Because either before or present tense as the Word is becoming flesh, being conceived in her womb. The Holy Spirit's overshadowing her. The, the angel Gabriel is speaking the Word of God. And she's becoming pregnant with the Christ. She's believing what the angel says. So Luther and me, the church fathers, say, boom. She's the first Christian in the sense that she knows that this child, this Jesus, is the Messiah. Yeah. Okay, well... I could go on and on about, about Mary forever. We don't want to worship her, but we also don't want to lump her in with everybody else as if she was 
of no greater consequence. And then, and then some of that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, as we're seeing um, Adam to be symmetrically answered in Christ, Eve to be symmetrically answered in Mary. Yeah, so the mother of all the living, I think, is... That's what, that's what leads her out of despair. That's what has her believe. That's what has her believe that she will even, you know, mistaken, be the mother of the, of the Messiah herself directly. And that everything will be put to right. Okay, how about uh, page 82? The cross alone is our theology. And of course, up to the uh, corner left there, we preach Christ crucified, 1 Corinthians one twenty-three. Wolf Miller writes, In ancient times, a road cut across the plain from Athens to Corinth, about a 55-mile walk. Paul walked that road, Acts 18.1. He was leaving Athens, having preached on Mars Hill to the philosophers, the Epicureans, the Stoics, and the people who worshipped in the temples. He preached about God, the creator of all, about judgment, and about the resurrection. His sermon made an impression, but few people believed him. As far as we can tell, Athens was the only city Paul visited where a Christian congregation was not established. He then left for Corinth. Somewhere along that 55-mile trek, he determined something, resolved something. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Here, quoting 1 Corinthians 2. Paul came to Corinth preaching Jesus, only Jesus crucified for sinners. Martin Luther was picking up on this teaching of Paul when he quipped the phrase I mentioned earlier, the cross alone is our theology. Apart from the preaching of the cross, we do not truly know God. On the cross, the very heart of God is shown. We know who he is because of what he does. We know that, quote-unquote, God is love because we know that Jesus has died. Apart from the preaching of the cross, we do not know the full depth of our sin, nor do we know the astounding height of the Lord's mercy. Apart from the preaching of the cross, we have no forgiveness, no salvation, no eternal life. This is not to say that the people of the Old Testament had no salvation. They did, but not apart from the preaching of the cross. For them, it was a preaching of the sacrifice to come, as discussed in the previous pages. Their faith was in the promise of a death to come, our faith is in a death that has already occurred. That's very key. Their faith was in a death to come. Our faith is in a death that has already occurred. But it is the same faith that justifies us both. Only the death of Jesus on the cross wins the forgiveness of sins. Okay, I'm not sure quite why this is bracketed, but the cross alone is our theology, Martin Luther. The cross must be our theology. It must be the object of our preaching and teaching. It must be the content of our meditating and our prayers. 
Paul's resolution to know nothing but Christ crucified ought to be a mark of the Lord's church. It is not. It seems to me that there are preachers who have made a sort of anti-Paul resolution. They know everything but Christ crucified. American Christianity is often a Christless and crossless place. Yeah, and that, that takes us back to our initial reflections. That there's either an absence, a tokenization, or a vast redefinition when it comes to Christ in the church here in American Christianity. So what do we want to do? We want to recover this. We want to recover this on the basis of the scriptures. We want to learn to understand the scriptures, preach, teach them, believe in them, see Christ in them. Because he truly is there. It's not some creative act by which we make Christ present. He's already there. What we're really, what we really by nature are when we can't see him is blind. He's objectively and truly in the scriptures. If we can't see him, that's not the fault of the scriptures. That's the fault of our perception, you see. And so we pray to be enlightened more and more by the word of God, which enlightens and illumines itself so that we ever, so that we come to know it ever more fully. All right. Any thoughts you have, or is this all uh, all okay? All, all fairly copacetic. I see. I see a hand over here. But Barry, did you have a comment? No. Okay. So, um, the Jesus movement, when all the churches, um, there was the big tent, and you know, Anyway, so then the churches get built, and they de they decide we're not putting crosses up. We're going to put the big stone. So you have this big round thing in the front of the church, and I would I knew what it was, but maybe if somebody was visiting, they just see the big, and unless the pastor points it out every Sunday, well, that's in place of the cross because Jesus rose from the dead, and so they're proud. I mean, you know, they're pleased with that. Sure. <clears throat> and then you know, and then the symbol of the Holy Spirit, you've got the dove, mm -hmm. and there's nothing wrong with that either. I just think it's sad because all of a sudden the cross was taken out of those churches. Yeah, and I, and I don't, I don't think they realized they were despising the cross. I they, you know, I mean, right. it's just, but it it's weird. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is a reason why Paul says, "I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified." He doesn't say Christ and Him resurrected. Obviously, the resurrection factors heavily in Paul's preaching, so to take nothing away from that, and yet the emphasis is on Christ crucified. So too, in connection with the Lord's Supper, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's resurrection until he comes. No, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so at the heart of Christian theology is the crucifixion of Jesus and the death of Jesus. Again, you've already heard my argument for why there really shouldn't be a church service without the Lord's Supper. I mean, properly speaking, a Sunday morning service. Um, without the Lord's Supper, because it is the New Testament in his cup. It is the thing itself. Why would you not have it? How could you have it without having it? With I mean, I don't know. It's like going to In-N-Out Burger and asking for vegetables. Like you're kind of missing the point. So um, so when you, uh, when you go to church and you have the cup, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. The preaching is to be a proclamation of his death for sinners until he comes. So the cross is always at the heart and center. It's sad when architecture is 
you know, gotten rid of that. Uh, we don't want to make a law of any of this stuff, but that's also beside the point. Even if it's not a law, it's like, okay, well, in your Christian freedom, what do you want to have up there? <laughs> and what could you have that's better than a crucifix? An empty cross isn't the same. Well, he came down from the cross. Well, there were three empty crosses that day. I'm not sure that that's better symbolism. An open tomb. Well, there's lots of open tombs. I'm not sure that that's the... And the tomb wasn't open for the forgiveness of our sins. He was crucified for the forgiveness of our sins. So I'm not sure that that's a superior. Not to mention, as the church has taught us, that it's by his death that he conquers death. So there really is, and I know that this is going to sound a little paradoxical, I don't intend for it to, uh, but there really is no better symbol of the resurrection than the crucifixion. Because it is precisely by his death that he conquers death. Not by his rising that he... I mean, if Jesus didn't die for us and he just died and rose, that wouldn't necessarily be for us. It wouldn't be an answer to sin. And if not an answer to sin, then not an answer to death. Sin is the cause of death. Where is sin taken away? In the resurrection or in the cross? In the cross. Well, if sin is taken away in the cross, then death is taken away in, his, in the cross. Thus, for 2,000 years, the church has been saying, by his death, he destroyed death. So, even the, even the cross is paradoxically, ironically, however you want to think of it, the best symbol of the resurrection there is. In, in John 20, where Jesus appears to his disciples, he shows them his hands and his side. He shows them his wounds. In Revelation, when he appears in heaven in his glory before the throne of God, as the Lamb of God, he stands and yet as one having been slain. You still see his wounds. Wherever the resurrected Christ is, he's always the crucified Christ as well. And maybe that's a lot of the problem with American Christianity. It's like, yeah, 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 he died to forgive our sins, but all that's in the past. They would, they would take the, they would take the risen Christ and put bandages over his wounds, maybe a little makeup, pretend that they weren't there. They would take the wounds away from Christ. They would take the crucifixion away from the Lamb. But the scriptures don't have it that way. The risen Christ is the crucified Christ. The, the risen and glorified Lamb is the Lamb who who stands having been slain. And there's no way to take that away. So even Jesus who lives, Jesus who's glorified, will st still and ever see him as the crucified one. Oh. Did I see a hand? Yes, please. Oh, time. Oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Okay, next week we pick up here with, um, you know, just, just reflecting maybe a little bit more on the cross alone as our theology. And then I think I intend to move a little more quickly through the remainder of this chapter. Um, we've spent some time. I hope it's been edifying. Um, we're going to take a look at, you know, the physical suffering of Christ, the shame he endured, the spiritual suffering, probably the most underplayed aspect of his passion. Um, we're going to take a look at all of these things next week. The Lord be with you.